refresh your thinking. And for those of you who may be new to this passage, you'll hear what's being said before we seek to uh, explain the verses. Beginning at verse 31 of Luke chapter 13. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I've entitled these verses, A Lamentation for a Nation. There are consequences to rejecting God's offer of salvation. The consequences are not merely individual, they are also national. Jesus warned Israel of God's impending abandonment of the nation because they refused him and the salvation he offered through their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. At the time of these words that our Lord was speaking here that we just read, we need to understand that the sand in the hourglass was running out for Israel. The door of salvation that was mentioned in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22 through 30, that we looked at last night was about to be shut for that generation of Jews. Another figure that Jesus employed to let them know that those who are hearing him and seeing him and observing his powerful works and his announcement that he is the Son of God, that he is Messiah, that judgment was coming. In Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, uh, the fig tree was about to be cut down. Jesus laments what is coming for the nation. The lament, of course, has, as I mentioned a moment ago, individual application. People had a responsibility to flee to the one sent to them for their salvation. All who heard him had that incumbent responsibility to come to him, to believe on him. In all of this, all of the reality that the nation was eminently under coming to come under divine judgment, Jesus was pursuing God's redemptive purpose and plan for sinners. In this passage before us, we see that purpose unfold. And as we see Jesus pursuing the reason he came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, we also see here in this passage something remarkable. We see the character of God displayed. We see his character showcased. We observe, let me give you some of the things, we observe his control, his compassion, his judgment, and his grace. And let me just parenthetically state that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is really an unfolding of who God is. 
Do you want to know what he's like? You want to know what he thinks? You want to know how he acts? You want to know how he plans? Read the Bible. You really want to know God? Get in the book. That, that's where you learn who he is. He is showcasing himself on every page of Holy Writ. Don't think that somehow God's going to come directly to you and tell you about himself. No, he's already told you in the word of God. So we see here as this passage unfolds, again, we see his control, God's control, God's compassion, God's judgment, and his grace. Let's look at the very first one, control. These men, the Pharisees, they come to Jesus there in verse 31, and he had just concluded the teaching that we looked at last week, and these Pharisees apparently were in the audience, and they wanted to kill you. It's a death threat from Herod, Herod Antipas, the son of King Herod the Great. You may remember him. He was that notorious ruler during the time of Christ's birth into the world. And he is the one who had all the male babies in Bethlehem murdered because he wanted to kill the king of the Jews, born king of the Jews. It's his son Antipas who's here, who is a chip off the old block. He had murdered John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one who declared, here's the Lamb of God who slain for the sins of the world. The prophet confronted him, John the Baptist did. You see, Herod Antipas uh, took his brother Philip's wife. Did you get this? This has a soap opera aura to it. And you thought soap operas were modern invention. No, 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 no. All they're doing is reflecting fallen human nature. He had taken his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. And John the Baptist confronted him saying, that's a violation of divine law. Herodias, who was formerly married to Philip, who is now with Herod Antipas, she didn't like that. She took a, uh, um, she held a grudge. But Herod threw a banquet in which Herodias' daughter was the uh, premier entertainment. She danced a sensual dance. And the lecherous Herod, after seeing her perform that sensual dance, promised her anything up to half his kingdom. And then, now, yes. <laughs> Old lecherous rascal. Low, let me get on that. Herodias, remember, she's nursing a grudge. And she seized upon that moment. She said, Come here, girl. You go tell him it's not up to half the kingdom. I want the head of John the Baptist. And I want it on a platter. It was ordered, and it was done. It's a sordid tale of immorality and murder. Now, the text does not tell us why Herod Antipas wanted to murder Jesus. We could probably speculate, but no point doing that. We just simply know he did. What we want to think about is this. Jesus was not intimidated by Herod's death threat. 
you notice in verse 32. Go tell that fox. Let's stop there and, and see what Jesus is saying. Calling him a fox. A fox was a wily, sneaky pest. They were known for their destructiveness. In fact, to call someone a fox was a demeaning, contemptuous insult. Jesus had no respect for Herod. Jesus let Herod know uh, that he was not a powerful lion, but simply a fox. He could not kill Jesus. Herod was impotent. Herod could talk the talk. He's kind of like the, the man from Texas who claimed to be a big cattle rancher with thousands of heads of cattle on a huge spread. And people who knew the truth said, no, he's all hat and no cattle. <laughs> Herod was all hat and no cattle when it came to Jesus. And our, our word, his words here, uh, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. Jesus is saying, I'm going to continue to conduct my ministry. I'm going to deliver people from demonic oppression. I'm going to heal sick people. I'm going to do exactly what the father wants me to do. Herod, you can't stop me. Your threats are empty. You see, God was in control of Jesus' ministry. He was in control of all of the events. Jesus was living his life and ministry under the sovereign authority and control of God the Father. And no mere man, no matter how elevated, no mere man, how, no matter how much earthly power he may perceive to have, could not stop Jesus from accomplishing the Father's will. And Jesus put the capstone on it. Notice, he says, in the third day, I reach my goal. This further underscores the inability of Herod to kill Jesus. He says, I'm going to reach my goal. You can't stop me. The third day here is not a reference uh, to the Lord's resurrection from the dead. In fact, it's not a literal reference at all to a day. It's a Semitic idiom for a short and definite time. Let me apply it like this, explain it like this. God had timed the events of Jesus' life. Jesus was following a divine time schedule. Heaven was in charge, not earth. Jesus asserted that he had reached his goal. He would complete or finish the mission for which the Father had commissioned him. That mission was a saving mission. That was why he was headed to Jerusalem. He was going there on purpose. He was going there by divine design. He was going there for that was the place where he would die. But not just die. In John chapter, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 9, verse 31. This is a verse that's 
uh, related in context to the transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured, changed there in his appearance, and a couple of men showed up. Luke chapter 9, verse 30. It says this, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Now, let me just inform you, if some of you may not know, who were who these? Moses, you remember, uh, he died, uh, and God buried him. It was thousands of years ago. Elijah didn't die. He went up to heaven alive in a chariot. Verse 31. They were in glory. They, in verse 31, they glorified bodies were speaking of his departure, Jesus' departure. Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure, we could render it exodus. And what this means is, his departure, that he would die, he would be resurrected, and he would ascend. That's what I mean. He was going to go back to heaven from Jerusalem. So Jesus was on his way there so that he might die, so that he might be raised from the dead, and that he might ascend from there to heaven. That is the plan. And now in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way there to fulfill the mission the Father had given him. Let me tell you this. Mark it down. Our salvation never hung in the balance. Our redemption could not be derailed. This was God's plan from eternity past. That Jesus would do these things in the accomplishment of our soul's salvation. Now you see in verse 33 of Luke chapter 13. Jesus continues. Nevertheless. I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So in utter disregard of the impotent threat from Herod, Jesus was on the move from day to day. He's going to reach his goal, Jerusalem. In fact, he says uh, here in verse 33, I must. That word must uh, means divine necessity. As we've already indicated in the verses we looked at in the earlier portions of Luke, it was necessary that Jesus die in Jerusalem a sacrificial death. For the fact of the matter is, the location of the temple is where all the sacrifices were made. And you recall during the Passover, they were slaying lambs and lambs. And guess who was slain on Friday? Those lambs pictured him. The Lamb of God. He's going to Jerusalem. And he would be the sacrifice. That all the other sacrifices pointed to. When the Jews celebrated Passover. Year after year after year after year. It was just a picture of the Lamb who was coming. And they did it in Jerusalem. But here's something that's ironical. Verse 33. <laughs> 
For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. <laughs> Here's the deal. God sent to Jerusalem. He sent to that nation his spokesman. He was sending prophets there to call them back from their sin and rebellion and idolatry. Sent them there to proclaim the word of God to them that they may return to him. Instead of them repenting and saying, yes, what they would do, they would kill the prophets. They were rejected by the people of Israel. To silence God, they stilled the voices of the prophets who told them God's truth. And call them to repentance. And here is the supreme spokesman. The ultimate prophet. God incarnate. He is coming. He's been telling them the truth. He has been calling them to repentance. Calling them to faith in himself. And they will reject him. And crucify him. In Jerusalem. He would accomplish his purpose. However, as God planned an eternity path, past, Herod notwithstanding. In fact, here's a wonderful reality. The Jews' rejection and murder of Jesus were the instrumental means of his death in the accomplishment of our salvation. Think about that. They rejected him, they hated him, they killed him, not knowing that that death by him would be the cause for our salvation. That's the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. <laughs> Think about that. Christians have known that. In fact, in the book of Acts, if you'd like to look there briefly, Christians understood In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, mm, let's say uh, verse 27. Uh, the leaders in Israel didn't want uh, the Christians, the apostles and the others to preach the gospel of Christ. And uh, they had punished them for doing so. And you think that's going to stop the church? No. They prayed. They had a profound understanding of the issues. They, their theology is correct. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 27, it says this, For truly, they had prayed in the previous verses, For truly, in this city where there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the Romans, and the peoples of Israel, now get this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You get that? They were the instrumental cause, those people listed in verse 27, to do what God had already predestined to occur. I entitled this portion of this pa passage uh, that I'm preaching from Luke, Control. God was in control. From beginning to end. And that's remarkable. That, that's helpful. To know in your own life, right? That he's in control. Even over wicked men. God's in control. Back in Luke chapter uh, 13. Compassion. Control, then there's compassion. 
It's another attribute of God. Not only, not only does it run everything and even causes the evil people to do that which is in keeping with his will to accomplish his holy purpose for the salvation of sinners, but he's also God of compassion. Jesus now directs his attention to the nation and he refers to Jerusalem since that city re- represents the nation. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, oh, there. Uh, that's an interjection. That, that's an expression of emotion. There's a direct address to the nation. It's a lament. It's grief. It's mourning for the nation of Israel. He is mourning for lost sinners. This is divine compassion for a nation that deserved condemnation. Jesus mourned. Compassion is an attribute of God. It's an attribute of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you'll read it and you have, if you've been a Bible reader any length of time, you've seen the accounts of God's compassion. Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19, he lets Moses know, as Moses wanted to know, show me your glory. And God showed him his glory, his attributes, and one of them is his compassion. In Lamentation 3, 23, the scripture says this, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. This was after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem during Jeremiah's day. How could Jeremiah say this? This is why Judah would not be destroyed forever. Why? Because of God's compassion. Micah 7.19 He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Because he's a God of compassion. There's forgiveness. In the New Testament, James, James chapter 5 verse 11 says this, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. God is compassionate God. Aren't you glad about that? These people deserved condemnation. And Jesus, who is God incarnate, he is compassionate. He says in his lament, he's mourning over this city. But he doesn't take delight in what's coming to them. For God does not delight in judgment. He doesn't delight or take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Rather, what he wants to do is protect them. You see in the text, though this city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her by God is what Jesus means. Look what he says, how often I wanted to gather your children together. Just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Jesus pictures his desire to protect Israel and save them from coming judgment. He uses um, a hen and her brood or her chicks. Think about it like this. A hen. She knows the storm is brewing. 
she hears the thunder. And she is aware of the lightning. And the hen gives a commanding cluck, cluck to her chicks and conceals them under her wings. That is the picture of Jesus saying, he's saying judgment is coming. I see the storm clouds of judgment coming. The lightning flashes of divine wrath are approaching and I'm calling you to come that I may protect you, shelter you, give you refuge from the judgments that's coming. But Israel wouldn't. Didn't have none of it. He said, no. We won't. How sad. How sad for Israel. Jesus' grief for them. You need to understand this. Grief for them, grief for sinners. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he's approaching this city. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that uh, storm clouds are brewing. In Luke 19, 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. That's grief. It's a divine display of grief for people who deserved judgment. In fact, judgment is coming. Verse 31, 34, excuse me, in Luke chapter 13. Since they wouldn't have it, since they refused his protection and salvation, since they said no as a nation, no, we don't want you. Since they orchestrated in conjunction with the Roman authorities to murder him, Jesus says, verse 35, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Those words mean they are now exposed to divine wrath. They're exposed to divine judgment. God had judicially abandoned the nation. In fact, that passage I had you look at a moment ago, the succeeding verses there describes the destruction that's going to come to Israel from their enemies. Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 and 2 talks about the temple being destroyed. And in fact, Jesus' prophecy of the coming destruction of Israel uh, were literally fulfilled in A.D. 70. At that point, guess what happened to Israel? They no longer had a king, they had no priest, they had nothing. In fact, the historians tell us a million people died in A.D. 70 in the revolt against Rome. A million people. A million Jews. 100,000 of them were taken captive. Israel's troubles have continued subsequent to that day. In 8439, the ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire issued a law denying Jews same legal rights as others. They're under the curse of God. 
in the last century, everybody knows who understands facts and believes evidence that the Holocaust happened. Six million Jews perished. I'm just giving you three things. There are more. In our very own day, there's anti-Semitism. It's rampant. And you can hear that and you wonder, why is it that people have this thing against Jews? I can tell you why. Because they're under divine curse. doesn't exempt the anti-Semites, but there is a curse. Because they rejected Messiah. Your house is left desolate. I said in the opening of this sermon that there are consequences to rejecting the salvation through Jesus Christ. And that nation is experiencing it to this very hour. But, let me, here's some good news. God is not done with Israel. The next point here, verse 35b, grace. Grace. Notice, it says, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word until, that's a significant word. That word until means this, uh, until they recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Right now, the nation's experiencing partial hardening. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, partial hardening. That's why you don't see Jews flocking into church. You go to Israel this very day, it's a secular state. They repudiate their, their Messiah. In fact, if you would read it, and I don't suggest it, the things that they say, Jews, about Jesus, are awful things. That partial hardening is until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Until you see me, he says. And then, when that happens, all Israel will be saved. Grace, grace. Let me, let me show you a place. I'm going to turn to Zechariah. That's in the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Say, God is not done with Israel. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. There is a day coming when they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the day they recognize him as Messiah. I'm just giving you one verse because there are tons of them. Zechariah 12.10. Here's the prophecy. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will look on me, Jesus Christ, when he returns. And they will recognize, ah, oh, he, he, he was our Messiah. We murdered him. Read 
reason they're able to do that is the spirit of grace will be poured out on them. They will believe on him. And so all Israel will be saved, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, I believe it is. By the way, let me throw this in, help you. You ought to think about something. Why is it that here in 2021, there's a nation called Israel? Have you ever made travel plans to go to the land of the Hittites? Are you going to have a vacation with the Gergesites? You know those Old Testament people? Uh, do you have a neighbor who says, oh yeah, I traced my ancestry back to the Philistines. Isn't it interesting that when you think about the ancient nations, guess who's still around? Do you know what that tells me? This book is true. Everybody wants to get rid of them. They can't, you're right, they can't because God has promised them. He promised to Abraham. There's an Abrahamic covenant. He's going to fulfill it. They're going to have a land. They're going to have a seed. They're going to have a king. Scripture literally tells us it's going to happen. That's why Israel as a people will always exist because God has a covenant with them. The veracity of the scripture is demonstrated by the fact that there is a nation called Israel. Jews know who they are. And they're not going anywhere. Because God has a plan for them. You can count on the Bible. Because it's God's word. He controls everything. And he's going to accomplish his purpose. You can count on that. And you can count on this. That if a person receives or accepts Christ and receives the compassion that comes with salvation, they will inherit eternal life. You can also count on this. That if a no to the gospel, they repudiate it, I don't want anything to do with it, you will experience condemnation. You can count on that. God's word is true. It will come to pass. Now the question comes down to this. If you're not a Christian, what are you going to do with Christ? Understand this. You're not judging him. Your response to him means he's judging you. What will you do with Christ? He calls you to salvation. If you're a Christian already, rejoice in what he's done for you. You belong to him. That's a blessing. It's a blessing beyond comprehension. To be one of God's children. To belong to him forever and ever. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your truth that you preserve for us in your word your ruling and we thank you for your grace thank you for your compassion towards sinners in your compassion you redeemed and you saved 
We thank you for that reality. We thank you for Jesus Christ, his love and to you and for us in being obedient to the death on a cross. Lord, we pray you strengthen your people who name your name that we will hold steadfastly to the truth and proclaim it to lost men and women. We thank you for this opportunity to open it and hear it. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. You're here this morning.